This morning we want to pick up in Mark chapter 11 and continue talking through the life of Christ. And as we know, last week we are in the final week before the cross, the Passion Week. And and last Sunday we looked at what happened uh, that Sunday as the triumphal entry happened and Christ came as King. Not the king they were expecting, not a political king, not a king that was going to overthrow the Roman Empire, but a spiritual king. And our focus last week was on viewing Christ as king, seeing God in His glory, in His awesomeness, in in His magnificence, and and really getting an idea of how incredible God is. He is king. He is sovereign. He reigns. And we worship Him. And we pick up in verse 11, as when the King comes, the King now is looking at how His kingdom is doing. Checking up on people. You guys know how this works. Moms, dads, if you're gone on vacation, and maybe you have some some teenage or older kids that are at home. (laughs) Some of you have just experienced this yesterday. You walk in the door, what are you doing? You start to look around, don't you? Hmm, what went on while I was gone? Maybe check the trash can, that's always a good one. Hmm, how come there's 50 pizza boxes in the trash can? How come there's ground-in food all over the house? Maybe you're looking at those things. Maybe you come home and you're like, wow, this is incredible. Everything is spick and span, it's clean. And, and you come in and you check things out. Same thing in work setting. If, if you're away from work for a while, you take a vacation, and you come back, and maybe you're a manager of some employees, what do you do when you come back? You, you try to get an idea of where things are at, right? Okay, what's been done? What hasn't been done? Do I still have employees? Do we still have customers? Little things like that. And, and you, you just try to get a grasp on, did the people that you left behind do what you said that they were supposed to do? Did they accomplish the purpose that they were left to do? That's really the setting that we come to in in Mark chapter 11, verses 11 to 19. As Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem and representing an ideal of what His spiritual kingdom should be, An ideal that the religious leaders had no idea of. And, And so He comes to the temple and He comes to look around And he's saying, okay, what's been going on? Not only in the three years uh, of his ministry there, but what's been going on since God gave instructions to the children of Israel? What's been going on since God initiated the, the worship and since God gave certain covenants? What's been going on? So in Mark chapter 11, verse 11, we want to, to look at this. And I think as we look at Christ's assessment and Christ's response, we get an idea of, of maybe how He would assess us in some things. And what His response would be and what's important to Him. Mark chapter 11, verse 11. Just start with one verse. And He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when He had looked around at everything, as it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Verse that's setting the scene. And, and point number one there as we work through the story is Jesus assesses the spiritual fruit in the temple. He assesses the spiritual fruit in the temple. 
He's coming and, and the triumphal entry happens and people are saying he's king. The words are there. But now let's check the fruit. Let's check out what's actually been happening. Is there worship happening of God? Is the nation of Israel accomplishing what God purposed them to do? Worshiping God Almighty. Being a light to the nations. Being a blessing to the nations. If you remember, part of the Abrahamic covenant was that you and your descendants will be a blessing to the nations. And we know that that was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But God's intention was that that group of people, His people, the chosen people, were to be a light for Him and sharing Him with those around, being a blessing to the nations. So in verse 11, Jesus comes in, gets off the donkey, then proclaimed as king, says to the disciples, come with me. We need to go look at something. Now, Jesus knew already what was happening at the temple. This wasn't that, that he was unaware. But he wants to bring the disciples along. And through this whole story, he's teaching. And he's teaching the men that will, will be the foundation and the beginning people of the church. He's saying this is what it's to be about. And so they walk along, they come into Jerusalem, and they come into the, the courtyard of the temple... And when you come into the gate of the temple, you come into the, the court of Gentiles. And he looks around. And a little bit later, we're going to find out what he sees. And he just assesses, is worship happening here? Are the nations able to see God and come to God here? Because that's why I chose my people. That's what I left them to do. It's getting late in the day and the disciples see this a scene that maybe they weren't as uncomfortable with as Christ because they had, weren't seeing through his eyes. And he says, let's go. And they go back out the gate, about two miles back to Bethany. We showed the map of that last week. On the other side of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is thinking. Because what he saw was incredibly troubling. Imagine for a moment if this morning Jesus walked in the back door. And next week he comes in. And last week, and, and he just visits us for, for a month or two. What would he see? What would he see? Would he see a people that are worshiping? Or would he see a people who could care less about who he is? That's the question. That's the setup of what's happening here. He comes in and looks. Goes back to Bethany. And now as the story goes on, as we pick up in verse 12, he begins to address the matters. Second point in your notes, Jesus uses a tree to show that fruit matters more than appearances. Jesus uses a tree, a simple fig tree, to show that fruit matters more than appearances. You might say, well, well, this is sort of not dealing with the temple. This is something else. And, and what's happening here is something we've seen through Mark and We've seen sandwiching where he Mark shares one story, half of one story, and, and then shares another, and then comes back to the first, and those stories are related. This is an example of that. Not so much a sandwich as maybe a Big Mac, because there's, it's actually more interwoven than just A-B-A. There's, he starts with the temple in 11, and then in the next section talks about the fig tree, and then he comes back to the temple, and then he comes back to the fig tree, and then he goes back to what pure worship should look like. And so he's using this 
as an illustration to his disciples to open their eyes to what's happening in the temple. He's inspecting the tree. He's already inspected the temple, and now he goes to inspect the tree. Verse 12. On the following day, so now it's Monday. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, they're coming back to Jerusalem from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, so it, was, it had leaves all over and foliage all over, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And so they're walking along the path, and they, they see a fig tree in the distance, and Jesus is hungry, and he uses his hunger as an opportunity, a teachable moment. And he sees the fig tree, and he knows what's there, but this is a chance to really show the disciples in a practical way, what he's talking about and what's going to happen in the temple. A little bit about fig trees in the area. Fig trees, would um, they had seasons for when their figs would become ripe. And this particular season, Passover is probably in April sometime. In, in February, March, the fig tree would start to bloom, but it would bloom with, with leaves and the foliage would come out. At the same time, these little nodules would come on the tree that were edible and they were precursors to the figs. And so those would come and some, some would call them blossoms or nodules. They were a delicacy of the time. And if a tree was going to have figs, and figs would come right about in June. If a tree was going to have figs in June, then it would have these nodules that were edible earlier in the season in April. If those blossoms weren't there, then there would, would be no fruit. There would be no, no figs a little bit later. That, that all was very helpful for me because I don't raise fig trees. I, I don't know much about fig trees. Fig Newton's about as close as I get. And, and, but it made a lot more sense when I started to understand what's going on because Jesus is coming to a fig tree that is in full foliage. So there's leaves everywhere. It looks healthy. And from a distance, you would think that is a great fig tree. It's doing everything a fig tree should do. And in June, it's going to be awesome. There's going to be figs all over the place. And Jesus is hungry and he says to his disciples, let's go, let's go over to that fig tree. Probably looking for some of those little nodules that were edible that, that travelers would eat. And he comes to the fig tree that looks completely lush, but on closer inspection... There is absolutely no fruit. There is nothing that would sustain a traveler. Nothing of value that could be given. And Jesus is is using this as a picture comparing the appearance of health with actual health of bearing fruit. See, a fig tree, if it doesn't bear fruit, it's worthless. It would eventually be cut up and cast into the fire. But a fig tree that had these nodules was useful. Some have have taken this as a very troubling passage that they're saying Jesus is mean to trees. And I read that in several places and, and quotes from people that say that. It's a tree. And if Jesus can use a tree to build his church, praise God, use the tree. And he's using it as an illustration to remind us that it's the fruit that matters. It doesn't matter how many leaves you have. It doesn't matter how healthy you look spiritually. 
Are you producing fruit? That's the bottom line for God. Are we producing fruit? And so Jesus here looks at the tree and he deals with the tree. He's inspected the temple, he's inspected the tree, and now he deals with the tree. In verse 14, he says, And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. We know from Peter's response in verse 21 that that was a curse. Um, that Peter took it as a curse. The disciples took it as a curse. An, inter- inter- an interesting little phrase there, and his disciples heard it. They were observing this. And that's a setup for, for the verses that are going to start in verse 20 that Pastor Andrew is going to talk about after Christmas. But it's a setup for, okay, what, where is he going with the fig tree? And the disciples have heard a teaching. But it's still about a fig tree. So then we move on to verse 15. We move on to the core of the passage, what Jesus is doing. But the fig tree helps us understand it. One other note about the fig tree, in the Old Testament, in a number of places, a fig tree was used to represent the nation of Israel. And, and so we see even that in, in Hosea, that God, when he's pleased with Israel, says it's like coming to a fig tree and finding new fruit. But then in the Hosea passage, he says, but they have become an abomination to me and they have brought an abomination into my house and, and, and he issues a curse on them. What a picture we have here. The tree represents Israel. It represents a people that were left to do his work, that were covenanted to do his work, and they are not doing it. And so his fig tree is about to be approached. Verse 15. Number three in your notes before we read there is Jesus zealously removes the affront to worship in the temple. Jesus zealously removes the affront to worship in the temple. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. It wasn't his time to die that day. That was coming in four days. Jesus zealously removes the affront to worship in the temple. He comes and he has seen He's gone back. The fig tree has happened. He comes back and now he's going to deal with what's happening in the temple. And for us to understand really the impact of this, we need to understand a couple things about the story. The first is they were coming into the court of Gentiles. And Don, do you have the the picture of the temple? We have a a handy-dandy illustration. This is the temple mount. And here is the, the temple complex itself. And this is where the Jews would worship. And there's different parts there that would be a great discussion. But moving along, we need to talk about this area right here. This area was the court of Gentiles. And it was the last area, the closest that Gentiles could get to the temple. There's a wall right here. 
And there's signs all along that wall that says if a Gentile passes there, they're they are guilty of death. They're bringing death upon themselves. And so the Gentiles could come in these gates and they could come to this area and God's intention was that that area was a place where the Gentiles could pray, where they could meditate, where they could see God. That as they saw the Jews worshiping in genuine worship, they could come here and meet God Almighty. And then from that meeting, prayerfully in the Old Testament, they would become um, Jew- proselytes to the Jewish faith and they would follow God, they would follow Yahweh. And that was God's intention there. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 56. Great description of it. Isaiah chapter 56. Verse 7 and 8. Isaiah 56, 7 and 8. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. So the temple is to be a house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Want to know God's purpose for the, for the temple? House of prayer for all peoples. His purpose for the temple court, the, the courtyard of the, the Gentiles? House of prayer. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to Him besides those already gathered. And we see even in the Old Testament, God's heart for the world. A heart for the world to know Him, to come to Him, to hear who He is, to worship. To worship. And so God's purpose of this area was a place of prayer, a place to be a blessing to the nations. That area is actually a pretty big area. On the screen it may look small, but some have estimated up to 500 yards this way. And something like anywhere from 250 to 350 yards that way. So this is a a huge area. Jesus comes, and this is the area that he's looking at. And what he finds instead is not Gentiles on their knees praying. Not Gentiles with hands raised praying. Not Jews worshiping beyond that and proclaiming who Yahweh is. What he finds is a number of stalls and animals and tables set up throughout this whole area. And they were selling doves and pigeons, and we know from other passages, sheep and and cattle, and they were selling anything that was needed for temple worship. There were also tables of money changers. And and the idea, and it, it started out with great intentions, the idea was that pilgrims that were coming for the Passover, it was very hard to bring all these animals. The animals had to be kosher as well to be, be, be a sacrifice. And so they, they created a place where people could come and buy their animals at the temple to worship God to, for, for offerings of purifications, for sin offerings, doves, for instance, for um, the poor could be used for sin offerings. They were for offerings of cleansing. And so it was a way for people to worship. It was to facilitate worship. The money changers, the same idea, because the people that would come, any males over 20, would pay a temple tax. And that temple tax was prescribed to be made in shekels. But nobody really had shekels around, so they would come with their Roman coinage, and they would exchange it for shekels. And so you can see that there's some some benefit here. 
But Jesus sees where this is at. And the issue is not so much what they are doing, it's where they are doing it. Because they've taken over the court of Gentiles. They've taken over the place of prayer, and now it is all, it is, it's a bizarre marketplace. story gets even a little bit more challenging because there there were actually markets that did this over on the Mount of Olives. Four of them they know of. That as the pilgrims were coming down the same road Jesus came down, they could come to one of these markets and purchase the same things. Jesus doesn't overturn those. He doesn't even speak against those because those are performing a service for worship. But somewhere about three years before this, the high priest was watching this because the markets outside on the Mount of Olives they were controlled by the Sadducees, or yeah, and not the high priest. Do you see where this is going? And so the high priest says, "Well, wait a minute. No, I'm sorry, not the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. Wait a minute. They're getting all of the money from this and all the benefit of this. So about three years before this, four years before this, the high priest says, "You know what? I'm going to open up the court of Gentiles." And I'm going to run this myself. In fact, he had storefronts himself in this area. And there became this battle between the Sanhedrin and the high priest. And and so the motives weren't even pure at this point. Other than purely for profit. And they took over the place for the Gentiles to pray. To let you know the scale of what's happening here, Josephus reported that one Passover week, 255 thousand lambs were bought, sold, and sacrificed. It's a lot of sheep. A lot of sheep. One vendor on a good day could sell 3,000 sheep. Do you see why they took over the whole area? Put 3,000 sheep in there. That's just one vendor for a, a place of prayer. I'd like to try something this morning to show us why Jesus was so angry. I'd like you to bow your heads, close your eyes. And I'd like you to try for a moment to focus on God, to pray to God, focus on His magnificence, focus on Him as King, and worship Him when you're hearing this. Some of you might be a little irritated with me right now. Why would I do that in the middle of a time of prayer? And my goal this morning isn't to make a sacrilege of prayer, but to help us understand why Jesus was so angry that what He designed to bring people to the kingdom and what He designed to bring people to Himself was completely perverted in a way that would keep people from the kingdom. And so He comes and He deals with it in righteous proper anger, forcefully and zealously, as was very appropriate. Some have said, well, I don't know, Jesus gets pretty violent here. Absolutely. 
Because the work of God is more important than profit for man. And so he turns over the tables, and he doesn't hurt anyone, but he's, he's turning over the tables and dispersing the animals, and he's dealing with sin. And he's dealing with it directly and zealously because there were two major problems. Two major problems that were happening. One was that they had perverted worship. And they had forgotten worship. They, had no, they were no longer even trying to worship. And the second, they were preventing people from coming to God. They were preventing people from coming to God. And we read in the verses, They came to Jerusalem, he entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Both the buyers and the sellers, it wasn't the, just the sellers, it wasn't that they were extorting people, it was that they were di- di- displacing people from worship. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Mark's the only one that mentions this. And an interesting picture because as you came in from the Mount of Olives to the eastern gate, the shortcut to the western side of the city was through the temple, through the court of Gentiles. And so people had just begun to use this as a road instead of a place of worship. They were taking worship lightly. They were taking outreach lightly. And Jesus stops it. The king stops it. And he was teaching them and saying them, is it not written? And he quotes the passage out of Isaiah 56, 7 that we read. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Just as a side note, he doesn't quote the part about sacrifices in the temple. Because in four days, he would be the final sacrifice. There would be no more need for the sacrificial system. But he says, my house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. But you made it a den of robbers. And oftentimes we take that phrase and we say, see, they were extorting money. And they they probably were extorting money. But the word for den of robbers there actually isn't one that extorts and isn't one that swindles. It's literally a bandit that retreats back to his safe house. And so again, think of the context here with the fig tree, the leaves that look healthy, that keep anyone from seeing that there's no fruit. And these these leaders, the religious leaders, tried to look healthy and they could retreat back to the safety of the temple and say, look, we're worshiping God, we're serving God, and we're doing all these things. While they were preventing people from coming to God and there was no fruit. It was their den, it was their safe house. And they were hiding behind the temple and all the things that they had built into the temple to try to keep from being seen as depraved. We see different reactions. The chief priests and scribes heard it, were seeking a way to destroy him. They now joined the Pharisees and the Herodians to try to kill him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. In way of conclusion, the last portion there, how do we apply this? What do we do with this? And I would challenge us that the same two issues Jesus was dealing with in the temple are the same two issues that we need to deal with today. 
The first is a question of, are we violating God's holiness in worship? Is there genuine God-centered worship? Both corporately in His house and individually in my life. Do I understand that worship is about exalting God and humbling myself? And good worship always includes both elements. My res- God's greatness and my response to that greatness. Do I have a genuine heart that is coming to God in worship? Along with that is, am I worshiping, when, not only am I worshiping, but do I zealously protect worship? Now, I'm not talking about a lot of things that may distract us here. Maybe someone sings off key and we're like, oh man, they are stopping me from worship. They need to be kicked out of the church. That is not what's happening here. What's happening is people that are not trying to worship, that are not genuine in worship. I would, I would dare say that actually bringing people in that are trying to worship with all their heart is what the court of Gentiles was about. Am I worshiping? Am I elevating God? Am I authentic in my life? Do I worship Monday through Saturday or just on Sunday? Do I give God glory? Do I elevate Him every other day of the week? See, activity does not equal worship. A heart that is sold out to God equals worship, that glorifies Him. When we come to corporate worship, do we treat that highly? Do we make it a priority? When we have different elements in a service, do we check out at different elements? Say, ah, that one's not for me. I'm going to wait for something that's for me. Or do we actively try to worship with every element knowing someone else is? When Scripture is read, do we actively strain our ears to say, how can I apply this? How is this true? When prayer is offered, do we check out or do we pray with the person, piggybacking on their prayers, in our hearts, praying to God the same prayers and adding our own in? When we worship in music and song, Do we join in and respect that other people have different preferences and that if I'm not joining in with them, I'm hindering worship? When God's Word is taught, do we take notes? Do we process it? Do we evaluate it? Do we question it? Those are all genuine elements of genuine worship. Worship isn't about singing. Worship is about everything we do and how it brings glory to God. Do I come on Sundays clean? Do I come having repented and begging God to search me that morning and know my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me? So that way I'm ready when I'm with you. Am I worshiping in a genuine way? And the second thing, are we drawing others to God? Are we drawing others to God? Or are we violating our purpose? See, the purpose of the nation of Israel was to be a blessing to the nations. The purpose of the church is to disciple the nations. We cannot get away from that. It's the last instructions Christ gave. It's the, if you look through the New Testament, it's over and over and over. 
Do we put a priority on outreach? Or do things get in the way? That's what Simple Christmas is about this year. Of saying, let's strip away some of the, the normal activities we do and say, we will touch lives for Christ. We will make time to touch lives for Christ. We will make time to be a court of Gentiles that the nations can come and see God's love. I challenge you, what gets in the way of of outreach? What comfort zones need to be destroyed? What activities need to be abolished? Will God see fruit or will he see really, really green leaves? Fruit reproduces. I challenge us as a church to not forget to be reaching a lost world for Christ. That's the message of the temple. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, this Christmas, may we strip away those things that get in the way of a lost world seeing you. Maybe it's different traditions. Maybe it's attitudes during shopping. Maybe it's just freeing up some time to take a neighbor to coffee. Lord, use us to change a world for you. In Jesus' name.